We have a couple of quick announcements for you. Uh, the first one is that we are continuing our Bible study on Thursday nights. I know um, several of you who are on right now have never been, and it has been, I mean, it's been awesome. Last week was great, great conversation, lots of good questions, um, lots of good answers, and we, uh, we are doing the book of John. We're in John chapter one. We're just kicking it off. We're, uh, this week will be week number three. So you're right with us. You don't have to, you don't have to prep for the Bible study anyways. You don't have to come every week uh, to understand what's going on. So please come check it out. I think you'll really enjoy Thursday night Bible study. This is kind of a, an unusual announcement, but I wanted to give everyone a heads up because there have been some changes to a relatively common translation of the Bible. That Bible is called the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, and this Bible is, you know, like I said, it's fairly common. It was updated in 1989, uh, last before now. Uh, and if you're not sure kind of where that comes from, it's a mainline Bible council um, controlled Bible. So the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, uh, United Church of Christ, United Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church commonly use the NRSV as their standard Bible. And the reason I want to kind of warn you about it is the Bible itself warns us not to change, add, or take away from God's Word. I'm going to read you two quick passages of scripture just to kind of back up what I'm saying. Uh, in the Old Testament, kind of right towards the front of the Bible, Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2, this is Moses speaking, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. And then if you fast forward to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, in fact, this is almost the very end of the Bible, verses 18 and 19, say, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now, those are just two examples. Those are specific to the to the context in which they're written, one written about the actual book of Revelation, the other written really about the law and the Ten Commandments. But it's pretty clear as you read through the Bible, God does not want us to change his word. It's his word. Um, so we're not supposed to make any substantive changes. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, for example, you might find an old text of the Bible, something written, you know, 1,500 years years ago, and it might reference Babylonia being in Mesopotamia, all right? Well, 
nobody knows where, not nobody, most people don't know where Mesopotamia is because there isn't a place called that anymore. And currently you would call it Iraq. So it's okay to say, to reference Babylon was a city in what's now Iraq, okay? That's not a substantive change. It's just kind of an update so that people understand what you're talking about. That's totally different. But when it comes to changing the actual substance or the actual uh, meaning of the verses, this is a huge problem. And this particular council has made some changes in the past that were kind of suspect, but the newest changes they made are just downright blatant. Um, so I wanna give you a quick example of why I think you should really avoid this particular version. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 both use a very specific Greek word, arsenokotai. Now, I don't expect you to know what that means, but I'll tell you it's a compound word. And arson means man, and koitai or coitus means bed. It's where we get the English word coitus, which means copulation or sexual intercourse. All right. So arsenokotai means men who have sexual intercourse with other men. And if you're reading almost any other translation of the Bible, like the NASB, um, the word you will see there is homosexual. That's what that word means. But in 1989, the NRSV changed the word from homosexual to sodomite. Um, and sodomite is a vague, kind of incorrect translation that really has become associated with male-on-male -male rape and other illicit acts. So this incorrect translation, by the way, and if you think about the timing, is also the root of the recent argument among mainline churches where some say that homosexuality is not prohibited in the Bible. It's only illicit sex that's prohibited. And not surprisingly, we see it in the churches that I just mentioned. You see that in the Presbyterian church, um, all those churches that I just mentioned. Well, now the NRSV has changed the wording again. This time they replaced the word sodomite with the phrase, men who engage in illicit sex. It doesn't even reference men having sex with other men. It's just men who engage in illicit sex in an attempt to eliminate the word of God on the subject of homosexuality. And so I'm telling you, don't be deceived. Stay away from the NRSV translation of the Bible, especially the one that they just published in November. All right. So uh, by, by the way, many have been deceived by these people already. Um, Paul would tell you to verify what I'm telling you. Okay. Not so long ago, that would have been an arduous task. You'd have had to go to a library and, and do a bunch of research. The truth is today you can find everything I just told you online. Um, I did. And when I first read about the changes, I, quite frankly, I wasn't sure that it was true. So I, I went and researched to make sure for myself that it was true. And you should do the same. Just be cautious and be careful with the sources you use. It is still the internet. All right. So tonight's sermon is called Quit Crying and Give Me My Belt Back. We're going to be in Acts 20. We're going to look at the first 14 verses, so have your Bibles ready. 
And John, if you would pray us in, we will get started. God, thank you for this day. God, thank you for our lives. God, I thank you for all that you have done for us. God, I pray for a good night tonight with uh, my father. I pray that everything that come out of his mouth would be um, your will, God, and of you, God. Uh, God, I pray um, for everyone in our church with COVID that they would be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. So in case you're wondering what that sound was, that was my grandson saying amen himself. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jake, for the uh, for the amen. All right. We are going to watch a quick video. Um, so watch this, and then we're going to talk about it. The first thing I want you to take away from today is this. You will have good days and you'll have bad days, but you will always learn something more or something new, and you will learn more overall on bad days than good days. You will learn more about yourself. You'll learn more about relationships. You'll learn about life and principles, and it'll build your character. If you're a person who wants to, let's say, improve on your character of patience, let's say, don't complain when you're waiting in a line. You ain't going to grow in patience until you put in a place to wait. It's like you go into a gym and, you know, you're walking through the front doors and, you know, you tell your wife or your husband, I'm going to the gym. You go into the gym and you come in three feet and you do a U-turn and you're right out. I went to the gym. You gotta go in there. What are you gonna do? You gotta pick up the weights. You exercise the muscles that you want to build. I stand before you without arms and legs, but a very strong man because of the bad days in my life. You know how it is. If you didn't go through what you've gone through, you wouldn't be who you are today. And I'm not belittling your pain, and don't worry, I've seen pain in my life, and I've seen not only in my life, but people's lives, and people say, well, at least I have no arms, no legs, and then what am I supposed to say? Well, at least I'm not an African orphan who's dying at four years old, and I met that person. What about the 10-year-old girl that was bought for 700 US dollars in Mumbai and kidnapped as a sex slave to have 350 clients before the age of 13, pregnant at 12, put the baby under the bed while she works on top, abandoned by her family. After she pays her debt of 700 US dollars, after three years, her child, she leaves on the streets of Mumbai hoping for a new life, no family, no job, no food. Her baby needs food. She gets raped, beaten up on the street. She comes back to the only way that she knows how to make money. She goes back to the brothels. She gets pregnant at 15 the second time, and then that child dies. And at 20 years old, she comes up to me. Yes, I have met this woman. She comes up crying. She says, Nick, I just found out I've got HIV AIDS. And I've got five for being a prostitute. What do you say to that? You may have arms and legs, but unless you know three things. Number one, who are you and what your value is? Number two, what is your purpose here in life? And number three, what is your destiny when you're done here? If you don't know the answer of those three questions, you're more disabled than I. 
So Nick Vujicic, um, obviously, was born with no arms and no legs. And I've seen a lot of interviews. I've seen a lot of, um, of talks that he's done. And one of the things that, that he tells people is that by the age of eight, he believed that he would never have a wife, that he would never have children, that he would never have a job. And he was convinced that his life was just going to be miserable. And so at the age of 10, in the bathtub with six inches of water, he tried to commit suicide at 10 years old. He later, obviously, from the video, you can tell he, had, he found Christ. Um, and now he's a motivational speaker. Uh, he actually focuses primarily on children and teens, uh, especially uh, young teenage girls that have uh, things like eating disorders, boys who have been bullied, things like that, things that, uh, you know, he knows about bullying. He can talk about that subject. Today, he's married. He has two children of his own. But there's really three reasons I wanted to play this particular video. First of all, Nick has no arms and no legs, but financially, he's probably more successful than any of us on this Zoom right now, and probably has touched more lives to encourage them, either in their life or about finding Jesus, than any of us ever have or will. Second, through Christ, he has absolutely no fear of what others think. And this is a topic we've talked about before. I think it's important for us um, to talk about it just for a second again, because so many of us are afraid to evangelize. Forget about standing up in front of people. We're even afraid like one-on-one -on -one, that, you know, we're going to say something, do something that, you know, would make us look bad or this guy has no arms and no legs and he's up in front of everyone. That to me is amazing. He has absolutely no fear about what others think. And third, and I've been watching Nick Wojcik for years, he stays on mission. And this really, I think, ties in well with our passage today. So we're going to go ahead and start uh, with our verses here in just a second. But first, last week, um, I just want to give you a quick little recap. Paul had called the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. If you remember, he had uh, shown up, and I'm going to move my cursor over so you can see. He was over here in this little town called uh, Miletus, and he had asked them, here's Ephesus. He had asked the elders to come down to where he was. And one of the things he told him right off the bat was, hey, I'm never going to see you again. And they were very upset about that. They were crying about that. But he said, look, I'm not going to be able to come back. But I've told you the whole gospel. I have shared everything there is to know that I know about God. And, and the reason he said that is he wanted them to understand that he was innocent of their blood. In other words, he had done what God called him to do. It was now on them 
to accept Christ or not. And of course, the people he's talking to, they're elders in the church, so they have obviously accepted Christ. And he also told them that wolves were going to come into the church in Ephesus, that they were going to experience strife and division, and there were going to be these wolves, but they were going to come from the inside. Okay, this, this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this NRSV change, because this is, this is an attack from inside. This is not an atheist telling us our Bible is wrong. This is not, um, so, you know, some group outside of Christendom. This is an attack from inside, trying to rewrite the Word of God. And then Paul goes on, and, and really the, the crux of last week's message had to do with it's more blessed or blessed to give than it is to receive, and we talked about that for some time. Then they had a tearful goodbye, the, um, the elders from Ephesus and Paul and his companions, they had a very tearful goodbye and got on the boat, and that's where we pick up here in chapter 21. Okay, so uh, Paul has now uh, departed. Again, here's where he started. He's departed from this area. He's gone through this little channel here past Kos. He's gone around the island of Rhodes, uh, which is a beautiful island, by the way. Um, he's popped over here. They've made a stop. And you can see this is a really long trip. He's going to go all the way over here to a town called Tyre. And you can see he's getting close because Jerusalem's just down here. So it was a long journey, right, from here all the way over to here in Tyre. And that's where they got off the boat because that's where the ship was about to unload its cargo. And it says in, in verse 4 that after looking up the disciples that we stayed there for seven days, but they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, who were these Christians in Tyre? Um, you know, who planted a church there? And I think it's uh, not only interesting, but kind of cool. We don't know. We don't know who planted the church in Tyre. Um, and I think it's important for us to remember that the book of Acts is not a record of all the acts of the apostles. It's kind of like the highlight reel, all right? There's all kinds of amazing things going on all over the known world, including somebody going to Tyre and planting a church because there's apostles there. But second, why are they telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. So let's put that on the shelf. But remember that the Christians in Tyre were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. All right. Verse 5 says, hey, when our days were ended there, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. So all of, everybody came out to escort them. And then they got down on their on their knees, and they had this time of praying on the beach um, here in Tyre, and they uh, finish that, and they get on the boat, because they're moving on, and of course the families go, and they get back on this boat, and they, they hit down, if you kind of look over here, they've started in Tyre, they hit this little 
um, little town here, and then they end up in Caesarea, all right? And verse 8 says, on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. This is kind of fun, because if you remember all the way back in Acts chapter 6, do you remember the story about Stephen? Stephen was the very first martyr for Christ. He was the first uh, person who was martyred for his faith in the new church. And uh, if you remember, Stephen was one of seven men who were um, tasked to feed uh, the widows in, in the area that they were in. And there were certain widows that the uh, certain group of Jews said, hey, we're, you guys aren't taking care of this group of widows very well. And so uh, Stephen was the very first deacon, if you remember that conversation, and there were six other men who were tasked to help Stephen accomplish this goal of being deacons, in other words, serving the people of the church. Well, Philip the deacon is now referred to as Philip the evangelist, and I think that's kind of cool. So obviously his role in the church has grown, and I need to put this in perspective. We are 25 years removed from the ascension of Jesus into heaven. We're 25 years down the path, okay? So a lot of time has passed. So Philip has grown up in his, in his, uh, you know, he's matured in his faith, and he's now Philip the evangelist. And I think that's pretty cool, because a lot of people don't realize it's the same guy. And verse 9 tells us that he had four daughters. Daughters. They were all virgin daughters, and they were all prophetesses. So they prophesied. Um, we don't get much other info about them. In fact, I don't think there's another word about them in the Bible. But there are ancient records about them. And uh, according to history, the daughters, or at least some of them, lived to be very, very old. And they were very, very well thought of um, and esteemed as informants um, as to the events and the belonging uh, of the early years of Judean Christianity. So apparently these young ladies lived to be very old ladies and were very influential where they were and apparently prophesied uh, some amazing stuff. So kind of just a little side note here, getting you ready for the rest of this story. All right, so starting now in verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. I remember a time in my own life. I was planning on taking a trip. I believe it was 2013. Um, I was planning a trip to Cuba. Um, and Cuba isn't maybe the, the place that people would go. Uh, if you're American, uh, you don't usually go to Cuba. They don't really like us there too much. Um, at least the government doesn't like us very much, right? So I remember having a conversation with somebody who I love, a friend, um, and he basically said, John, don't go. 
Like, why would you put yourself in harm's way, potentially? And it was, it was interesting to me. That trip was really a life changer for me. Um, I grew up in business like the rest of my family. And quite frankly, once I really got serious about my faith as I got older, I came to a point where I really um, wasn't happy about how I'd spent my own time. Even after I'd come to Christ, I really felt like the first 10, 12 years of being a Christian were kind of wasted. Like I, I didn't have a lot to show for it. And I felt like I had wasted time in business instead of working for God. But while we were on that trip, one of the things that uh, we were there to do was help a group of pastors who had actually gotten a hold of a printing press. And it, of course, is illegal to print anything in Cuba that's not approved by the government. And so they were printing Bibles and they were distributing these Bibles across the island. But they didn't understand business concepts at all. They'd been brought up, you know, in this communist country. They didn't know anything like the idea of, well, if you work harder, you should get paid more. They're like, huh, what? Um, just give you an example. My translator was a, a bricklayer. And while I was there, I asked him, I said, hey, uh, what do you make as a bricklayer? And he said, oh, I make $12 a month. I said, well, what if you're like the best bricklayer on the island? He said, well, you make $12 a month. I said, well, what if you like, don't even show up for work? You make $12 a month. It, it, you just, it is what it is. And so business was completely foreign to them. Well, me and another individual got to spend time with them and teach them business concepts. So we're teaching business to pastors and we're done. We had this kind of a workshop, if you would, he and I start walking kind of back through the slum back to where we were heading um and i just break down i mean i just start literally like weeping and it's funny because i'm a pretty big guy i'm kind of i hope i'm pretty masculine guy the guy i'm with looks like um first of all he's even bigger than me he's he's you know gruffer than me uh and he's looking at me and he's like dude what's going on you know like what's happening and i'm like i realize now god is gonna use my past for good. I felt like he had redeemed all the time that I had spent. And God was telling me, you didn't waste a thing. I don't waste anything. So anyways, um, that trip was super powerful, but people tried to talk me out of going, right? And kind of back to Paul. Oh, that's exactly what happening here. See, the prophecy about being bound is correct. He is going to be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. Unfortunately, the human application of that was there's danger in Jerusalem, so don't go. And God was telling Paul, there's danger in Jerusalem, and go anyway, okay? So just like the disciples in Tyre, they equated danger with don't go, all right? So moving on here, verses 13 and 14, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So Paul understood that the message was danger awaits. 
and go anyway. And Paul's really saying, hey, y'all, you're making this so much harder for me. This is, this is really hard. I love you people. You're breaking my heart, right? I'm about to face this dangerous situation. God's telling me to go, and you're trying to get me to stay. Stop. I have to go. And it leads me to my first question for you tonight, but it's a hard question for you to consider. Are you ready to be bound or even to die for Jesus? That's a hard question. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27 record some hard words from Jesus on this topic. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but he basically says there, if you come to me to follow me, but you don't put me above your family, you can't be my disciple. And if you're not willing to trade your life here on earth for an eternity in heaven, you cannot be my disciple. Disciple. The easy life is a lie. It doesn't exist. Too often, we in the church tell people, hey, pray this prayer. And everything will be good. You're going to you know, live happily ever after. But that's not true, right? And then they encounter difficulty, and they start to doubt their faith because it was based on incomplete information or even a lie. I heard a great analogy from another pastor um, about people in the church. And his analogy was, imagine that there's, uh, you're looking out over the ocean and there's all these people swimming in the ocean, like thousands of people, but they all have life jackets on. And we in the church, we kind of prop those people up, right? We, hey, come to the Bible study, do this, do that, make sure you're here on Sunday. You know, we're uh, they're always around other Christians, but we never really make sure they're saved. And then, God forbid, they take their life jacket off and they sink. And the church tends to be their life jacket. So when life gets hard or they get isolated, their faith just disappears. And there's a lot of people who struggle with that. The truth is, those of us who are more mature believers, we kind of rather not have the life jacket. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to swim with a life jacket on, it's kind of hard, and you certainly can't swim very fast. So if you know how to swim, you're better off not having that life jacket on. And that life jacket's not Jesus, it's the church. It's that sense of, hey, I'm good because I go to church on Sunday, all right? I hope you're following me. Ephesians 12 verses 10 and 11 say, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, you need to realize that you are the target of the schemes of the devil, you and me, we are the target 
So here's another question for you to consider, and I think it's an important one. If the devil were to tempt you right now or attack you right now, would you be ready to fight back in the strength of the Lord? Are you ready to send the devil packing? Are you ready to send him running like a, like a dog with his tail between his legs? Paul was, okay? Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, at least the day we celebrate Martin Luther King's life. We're going to watch a very short clip of him speaking, and I want to make really clear right up front, this is not about politics. We are not talking about politics right now. And besides, quite frankly, the socio-political landscape is radically different than it was 60 years ago in the United States. But many people don't even realize that MLK was a pastor long before he was a leader in the civil rights movement. And I always think of him as a pastor first. And we're at church. This is about faith. This is a very interesting little video clip. I want you to listen very closely to what he says in this clip. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to be a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we other people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight, I'm not worried. All right. So I don't know if you recognize that speech or not, but that was the last speech that he delivered before he was assassinated. He was actually killed the very next day. And I'll be honest, I think he knew it. I think he knew it was coming. I want you to listen real quick. It's a verse, uh, a section of scripture you may not have read in quite some time. It's Deuteronomy 34. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 5. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. See, Moses died never having reached the promised land. And I believe, I personally believe that God told MLK that his death was near. I think he knew. But he pressed on, and if you caught the last basic thing he said is, let God's will be done. Paul, in our verses, Paul knew his end was near. Okay, he knew that, but he pressed on and he said, let God's will be done. The truth is, time is short. The return of Jesus is near. And we may not see the second coming of Christ, but that's not what's important. What is important is that we save as many souls as we possibly can before he returns. And we need to get to it. We need to let the Lord's will be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a great example as Paul. Thank you that we can see what it looks like to walk in your will, regardless of what those circumstances look like. Lord, I pray that we would put ourselves in his shoes, that we would be encouraged by his actions, because all he was doing was emulating Jesus. He was trying to look and walk and talk just like your son did. So, Lord, I pray that we would have courage, that we would not be afraid, that we would come together as a body of believers and encourage one another, not just to grow in our faith, but to walk in it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what? Now what? Who will you encourage this week? Who's on the list? Who has God told you you need to talk to that person? Who will you encourage this week? Who will you share the good news with this week? What if Jesus comes back tomorrow? I want you to think about this for a second. What if? What if there's someone that God's put on your heart? And I'll bet if you think about it, there's one there. Maybe you haven't listened yet. You ask him, he's going to tell you. What if he comes back tomorrow and you haven't talked to that person yet? You're going to stand in front of Jesus. What are you going to tell him? I think it would be better for us just to get it done, don't you? Who will you share the good news with about Jesus this week? Who will you love till it hurts this week? Or maybe you're the one who's hurting. Maybe you're the one who needs to be loved. Are you the one who needs to hear the good news about Jesus? Because I'll tell you, we are literally praying that you will reach out to us, that you will, that you'll go to the website, that you'll click the contact us, that you'll call, you'll text, you'll 
reach out to us. We literally are praying for that. We want to answer your questions. We want to help you find the Savior. We want to help you meet Jesus. Because he's the one who will change your life forever. So reach out, please. Home group leaders, download the call to action questions now and answer them with your group. You know, today we learned about facing danger in our walk with Christ. For Paul, that meant traveling to Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to find out what happens when Paul gets there. So don't miss it. Thank you for being part of the Steepless Church family. We love you, and we'll see you next week.